out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Oh, yes, we do. This week, it's going to be the turn of Andy Ross. I know what you're thinking, Andy Ross. Blur. But before the world that was Blur was the Disco Zombies who came out of Leicester in 1977 um, and put together a load of singles, EPs, and even John Peel loved them. When I say even, but, you know, obviously he did love them. And we'll find out more about that love within the interview. Um, But recently, Optic Nerve Records, all the way from Preston, has put together a compilation of the Disco Zombies stuff which you will be able to buy, I do believe, in the new year. If all is going well, and let's face it, why? Why wouldn't it? Anyway, look, this is the interview with Andy, um, and this is after several minutes of casual chat that you do. Um, we got down to, yes, the early formative years, and um, at that stage, Andy just wanted to know if I knew something important. Anyway, you'll get the gist when you hear this next bit of the interview. Anyway, Andy, take it away. Just prior to that, are you aware of my background with food records? Yes, this is so true. I ended up, well, I, I, I signed Blur. So um, um, so I, I was sort of responsible for song two becoming a single. And um, that, that track is everywhere, every single football match now. And when, when they score a goal, they play Blur. But so that, 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 that came along a bit later in the day. But um, with regards to them, uh, I never told them that I'd been in a band before because prior to the internet, if, um, who would ever know that the disco zombies ever existed and why would they care? And we weren't famous, so it's like not interesting. It's kind of like you were in a band, but they weren't really successful, so move on. But um, so <laughs> what, in the, thing, the, the band started, the disco zombies started in uh, Leicester. Uh, but I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Crystal Palace in South London. But um, and I'd worked in record shops for years and years and years uh, uh, as a kid, and um, so I moved to Leicester after I'd worked ran a record shop when I was eighteen. Um, moved to Leicester for my to, to play snooker badly and um, drink beer as you do as a student in those days. Right. And, and um, I, I I started out as a as, as a solo performer. A bit like a kind of Billy Bragg thing um, at uh, college, and I, I, I called myself the the, which was, I thought was a dreadful name. But of course, subsequently, when I got rid of that name, uh, someone else came along and did exactly the same thing and had a, a huge success with the name the the. But uh, I thought it was terrible. So I, I found some like-minded souls, as you do at these places, and. Um, there was a bit of a punk scene going, a nascent punk scene going on in uh, Leicester in um, 70, 77, roughly that's what the year it really kicked off. And I'd started a group with um, three three other guys at, um, when I was a, a, in um, halls of residence at, at Leicester. And we were called the Disco Zombies, which, uh, which is a song that I had written, but um, I didn't suggest that name to the group. It was the bass player, Dodd. His name. He was from Bristol, and um, and he suggested, well, why don't we call ourselves that? And I thought, well, actually, yeah, yeah, it's not a bad idea. So yes. we did that, and I was the lead singer, but uh, I didn't really, 
I didn't really fancy myself as lead singer. I mean, the whole point of doing the band really was me to to get my songs um, exposure. Really, I, I, I felt I fancied myself as a bit of a songwriter rather than a musician, and I never ever ever really mastered playing guitar particularly well. So, um, but we we got we had decent musicians. The bass player Dodd was exceptional, still is actually. And uh, we had decent guitar players and had you know, a good drummer. And um, but I, I, we, there was a scene going on in Leicester. There was a scene going on in every college town around that time, um, on that sort of arty fringes of, of uh, university life. And um, at Leicester University, there was also um, the Poly Leicester Poly, which is now called De Montfort University. Oh yes. And um, we found there was a band there called the Blazers. Who were kind of sort of rivals, but you know, fellow travellers really. And um, I, I quite liked the uh, the look of the singer, not in, in not, not in a peculiar way, but uh, uh, why don't why don't we try to nick him? So um, I, I approached Dave Henderson from the Blazers and said, I know this isn't a done thing, but would you do you fancy quitting your band and joining us? And I, I, after a little while, he said, "Yeah, all right." So he became our front man. It was it was more the front man aspect that was of interest at that. Yes, point. and was just briefly was the Princess Charlotte was that going at that stage in in sort of Leicester? Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. Uh, I think we played we played there, but there were lots of lots of little venues um, in those days dotted around, mainly in the backs of pubs. Uh, one pub in Leicester had a, an old school skittle alley in the back uh, back room, and they they used that as a venue and, and things like that. So we'd play at the the Poly and the, the, the halls of residence and what have you. And uh, when when the punk thing was coming along, and so we we got a few decent supports uh, in and around Leicester. And um, then then uh, when 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 uni came to an end, we relocated to London. Um, Dave, Dave went and, and eventually became, um, well, he was a graphic designer, really, and um, he, he went on to work for Sounds and EMAP as a, yes. as, as a doing layout and um, publishing. And, and sometimes being confused as the lead singer of the uh, the fire engines in, in Scotland. Yeah, he, he mentioned that, actually, <laughs> recently. That's uh, easily done, I suppose. Um, but, uh, Davey, Dave. The Fire Engines were, were a good band, though, so that's that's not so bad. Yeah. So, so were you at that stage? Because when you were a student in the 70s, there was lots of exciting things. A, you used to get sort of a grant and tuition fees paid. And I do remember my brother had also been a student in that period. And you could even claim, I think, uh, unemployment at Christmas, Easter, in the summer holiday and housing benefit. I'm not quite sure about the housing benefit. But students kind of were awash with money at that stage. And if you were in debt, it was only because... You were really hopeless with money because it was kind of hard to spend that much money, wasn't it? Well, yeah, you got that, got a hundred percent grant, you know, not not repayable. <laughs> oh, so um, yeah, it was ha- happy days really, and um, because I, 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 I and you get a Saturday job as you do if you're a student, but I also um, in the in the holidays I could work in the record shop that I developed a relationship with in London. So when we moved down to London, I got a job with the um, the record shop, small and in, small independent record shop uh, that was based in Forest Hill at the time, 
And so I moved straight into um, running a record shop when I was uh, just fresh out of the university because I had I I'd already had a few years of experience of running a record shop, um, and I knew what I was doing, and I was fairly responsible, which is quite shocking, really. But um, so I, I started this record shop and specialising in uh, punk uh, music, new wave, and so that but then the record shop became a bit of a, a local epicenter of music and and we had some of the regulars were rat scabies was was a regular he used to the drummer of the damned he used to come in and just sit around really and um do, do nothing and we'd listen to records and also the dave ruffy who's the drummer of the ruts he came he was a, a regular as well All local people yeah and in that area, that's where, where that's where Francis Rossi of Status Quo was born, was Forest Hill. But um, so that became a sort of a bit of a scene. And um, Dave Henderson uh, eventually moved up to Kentish Town and um, lived above a record shop called Honky Tonk Records in Kentish Town. And that was that that was a local uh, centre for for aspiring musicians as well. And they had a shed out the back of the the premises. And so we used to rehearse in there, as did lots of other bands, including 23 Skidoo was a band. Mm-hmm. They were local lads and um, and they used to hang out with us. So so it, 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 during that period, in fact, by the time we moved to, um, I moved up to uh, Kentish Town to live with Dave. And that, we, we'd been going for a couple of years by that point. But, uh, prior to that, when we moved, when we moved down to London and I moved to um Got the record shop. Uh, I started a record label which lasted for two two releases, I think, called South Circular Records because um, the record shop was on the South Circular Road in Forest Hill, and um, we we uh, we re- recorded a single called uh, Drums Over London, which I put out on that single or on my label, right. which we hand stamped and hand. Uh, Dave did the um, screen printed all the sleeves in Kentish Town and cut them up and then I I, I bought a, um, a rubber stamp from a, a printer or something and we printed all the hand printed all the labels and uh, and um, then I took them I took them down to uh, rough trade distribution in in um, Notting Hill which had only just started because indie music didn't really exist before around 1978 or, or, and um, uh, he took a load of um, our records and um, and they sold out very quickly. But John Peel took a liking to us by that point. Um, and I just looked up through some of my notes earlier, and it, 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 apparently John Peel eventually said that Drums Over London is one of the um, most important records of the era. Nice. So, so, yeah. <laughs> Good old John. Yeah, I thought, crikey. So I met him um, eventually at, uh, a bit later on, and he said, oh, drums over London, yes, disco zombies. I remember the disco zombies. I said, nice. Yes. So when you were sort of just going back slightly, but not too far, but, you know, when you were, you know, that formative years, you know, when you were about 10, 11, was, was you know, seeing Top of the Vops or listening to, you know, the top you know, the charts on Radio 1 on a Sunday evening, was it kind of, were, were you quite obsessed with music from a very young age? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my first recollection really is my mum doing the twist in the kitchen to uh, Chubby Checker when I was about five or six or something. And um, the first record I ever acquired, one probably with pocket money, I don't know, I was seven. It was um, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. And so uh, this is long before Radio One had even started. 
So I'd listen to Radio Luxembourg late at night on my transistor radio and listen to The Kinks and You Really Got Me and songs like that, which are very formative, I suppose. In, in, not, not just for me, but in, in, in fact, that particular song, You Really Got Me, is a forerunner of punk in its own right, I think. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, re- records, music was everywhere in, in my life. And, and, um, uh, and I, uh, so I was a bit you know, precocious in, in terms of uh, my musical taste, I suppose, because when I was, um, when was I 13, I went to see Tyrannosaurus Rex at the Fairfield Hall in Croydon, um, uh, supported by David Bowie doing mime, and John Peel reading fairy stories, and a sitar player. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's, that's, quite, that's quite advanced, really. I also... I, um, but I, prior to that, when Radio One started in 1967, they started in the summer. They had something called Radio One Club uh, over about six, the holiday periods, you know, school holidays, and um, they had a, a studio in South Lower Regent Street. And I went there on two occasions, I think, when I was uh, 12. And so those were the first bands I ever saw was when I was 12. And the, the two bands were, one band was called Episode 6. Remember them? No. Um, but uh, <laughs> it, um, the, the singer and bass player of the, uh, went on to form Deep Purple. So I saw half of Deep Purple in one band. And the other band I saw there was called The Idle Race. We were from Birmingham. And that was Jeff Lynn's band prior to him joining right. the move and forming PLO. So I was quite fortunate to, to see some fairly influential musicians at that age. Yes, and, did, and during the 70s, because it was quite an interesting period, because obviously the 60s, the party had really happened and then it all went slightly sour. And then you got the sort of the glam period. And then, you know, there was kind of the, the birth, I suppose, of heavy rock with people like Black Sabbath. And then, you know, there was also that whole prog period as well. And my brother, who was seven years older, he was very into prog. So I worshipped him. So I thought, yay, I love prog rock when I was very young. Did you, did that sort of come into your con- consciousness or all I love, all? I love all the thing is, well, I, I actually saw the Nice play, at, again, in Croydon at the Fairfield Hall with Keith Emerson. And uh, who are sort of proto prog, really, I suppose, mm. because certainly Emerson, Lake, and Palmer were definitely one of the first major prog bands, I suppose. But uh, but in, in prior to punk rock, I think you didn't have there were no barriers between different types of music, and you didn't. I don't think the word genre even existed in those days because you could listen to a decent pop song or a bit of Slade or a bit of Bowie. Or, or in my case, I'd listen to um, John Peel was playing early kraut rock, which uh, was a very dubious term. But um, so I'd be listening to Cam and Noy and Faust and David Bowie and and bands like Sparks, um, that, who I saw alive very early on, and Sailor. And it was just that you didn't have there weren't any barriers, and you could listen to ELO without any compunction, particularly. Yes. So punk came along and then the, the, the barriers came down and it was like, you're either with us or you're against us. And so ELO had to go and Supertramp most definitely had to go quite rightfully so. But um, Oh, Breakfast that, in America was a classic. Yes, but you couldn't admit that. <laughs> the, My brother loved it. Yes, the album with the woman. Oh, yes, but name, name the singer. 
Interesting. Oh, yeah, but interesting, I saw a documentary on Chicago, which I was amazed because they just kept going, but they were just totally different lineups. It was literally like a, a company who just said, right, that's fine, you're leaving, we'll get you in. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who's in the band as long as the band is still going. And it's, it's longevity, isn't it, with Chicago, which I didn't know until I watched this documentary. Oh. So. Chicago had well, one of those groups that had the mysterious shrinking name because they started out as Chicago Transit Authority. And then that got the same way as the cult started off as Southern Death Cult. And so it's this incredible shrinking name. Yeah, chop a bit off. So, because yeah. <laughs> so, during, during the 80s, you know, there, there was the kind of the golden period because there was that kind of, well, it wasn't great for a lot of young people because, you know, huge unemployment. There was Job Seekers Alliance, Enterprise Alliance schemes, all those things. And a lot of bands, a lot of people just formed bands because there wasn't that much else to do. And, you know, getting a single on John Peel was a big thing. And sort of indie suddenly kind of exploded. And I've always put indie down between the years of 83 to 87, which are the years of the Smiths. But there was definitely a moment. And then ecstasy came along. This is a very simplistic view of it. Um, but there was definitely a moment, wasn't there? So what what did you sort of, because uh, then suddenly there's all these little labels started to appear and people like me just like, wow, this is great. And every city and every town had an indie night. There was John Peel, there's the NME. It was kind of a golden period and, and you sort of managed to surf that zeitgeist, didn't you? Well, we were at the forefront of it, but uh, you know, not not that we were aware of it at the time, but because um, I've, I've, done, I've done some talks myself or live with um with the help of an assistant the origins of punk uh, I've, I've done a story about that and um throughout the 70s um there, there there was something in the air but you didn't quite know what it was and it sounds like the new york dolls were around but um you knew something was about to happen but you didn't quite know what however when when punk started all of the first releases were released by major labels all of them. The Sex Pistols were on a major, the Clash were on CBS, the Jam were on Polydor, all of them, all of them, because in, indie labels did not really exist. The, the closest you got to an indie label in those days was Virgin or Island or Chrysalis, which were in the indie labels in their own right um, mm. 10 years prior to that. What was, Har were, was Harvest an indie label? Was that a major label? Um, that's, that's a curious one because they were definitely in, involved with um, EMI. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Ayers came out on Harvest. I love Kevin Ayers. Um, I'm not sure. It might have been a subsidiary, but um, no, they were probably were an independent label. Same, same as Charisma were, a, were an indie label as well that had Genesis on them. Uh, yeah, so but, but there wasn't this real um, community of indie labels at that time until probably until um, rough trade distribution came along because there wasn't much need for an independent distributor if you were signed to a major. They, they did all their own distribution. But um, there, weren't, there were not very, very few indie labels before 1977. In the UK, it was um, Chiswick, it was about 1975, and then Stiff was 1976. Yes, because uh, New Rose came out uh, in October 1976, and that's generally considered, or I, I would su suggest it was the first UK punk record. Mm. Uh, you, have, you might as well pick a starting point. And, um, and, and the drummer used to be, came to my record shop. As a, that's good <laughs> enough, isn't it? Yes, um, absolutely. That, that ties that argument over. 
Well, so we we um we we'd recorded a record in um in 1977, 78, um, for a, a bloke who had a record shop in Lincolnshire that for various reasons, he ran out of money and couldn't put the record out. And so subsequently that EP was released after we re- recorded our, our first single, Drums Over London, which wasn't our first recording, but it was our first release. And so I'd started um, just getting a hang of um, the concept of making your own record. And so we going to a studio, that was fairly straightforward enough because there were plenty of studios knocking around. So we went and recorded that and somehow I've worked out how to get test pressings and records pressed and we made the sleeves ourselves. And then I I found out about rough trade distribution, rough trade records, I don't know. So I went down there and met Jeff Travis when he was working in the record shop in in, um, rough trade records in uh, Notting Hill. And he's sort of curly-haired, hippie-type bloke. And so I just went down there with a, a box of seven-inch singles saying, um, would you, uh, could you distribute our record? And he said, well, look, it's, it's, it's um, sale or return. You know, we, 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 you just give them to us. And uh, if we flog them, you'll get your money back. And if you don't, we'll give you the records back. And uh, that was the fairly fair ethos. I mean, yeah. this... And so um, we did that. We we produced our record and then sent it off or got it to John Peel of, and he played it and um, he seemed to like it. Uh, and then we, we, we sold out the first thousand singles in a, quite quickly, actually. So we made it another 2,000 and we sold all of them as well. And I think we, actually these days, if you sold 3,000 records in the in six weeks or something, you'd be on top of the pops probably. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, we, you know, we never made it to TV. I'm afraid. So no, no. So how did the how did the band? Because normally, you know, and you probably know this story well. You know, most bands have a four four year narrative. You know, they get together, they have that honeymoon phase, especially in the eighties. You know, John Peel give them a play, then they get the John Peel session. That first album, things going quite well. And then it's that kind of right, the second album, they've been touring around the country in a rather sporadic way. Um, and if anybody ever does America, they always just seem to split up. But the second, third album is when, you know, someone mentions the publishing and, and sort of the percentage of who should be, be getting what with the band and they pull the rug <laughs> and they sort of realise there's all these issues that haven't been spoke about. And then, so, you know, that's kind of the end. So what happened to the, the disco zombies? How did you sort of come well, to in. The whole experience you talked about, about the, the second album and all of that, um, I had that experience when I was running my own record label a bit later on, because um, I, as, as this, we never got to those, those levels of uh, achievement. Uh, and what happens with bands, you get, dis- you get disillusioned and disappointed after a while if you, if you haven't made it, because everyone thinks you have to make it, whatever that is. And uh, after a while you think, well, you know, we're, 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 we're getting a bit older. We, um, um, we're, pay, we're all going to pay our rent or whatever. And um, so you start looking elsewhere for other sources of uh, income, really. And I was, one of, I was working in record shops. I ended up managing um, big shops for uh, our price in the end um, when, when they were still going and uh, until they got rid of me. Um, but, uh, so, so I, I, I personally got a, 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 lot, a lot of experience from the whole process of um, being in a band, writing songs, all, all of that stuff I, I, I knew about, which, which stood me in good stead once 
I've moved into uh, running a, a, a more professional independent record label, which is my part of the story. And then um, other, everyone else went their own ways. Yeah. And that is, that's, that's what happens to most bands, most young bands, because after three or four years, um, I, I've been managing a band recently and they've eventually sort of temporarily at least thrown in the towel because the, the, the temptation of going to university eventually proves too much for some of them because uh, mm. um, otherwise it was, what are you doing wasting your time in a, in a, a silly little pop group yeah. but uh, everyone sort of has their dreams a bit, a bit like footballers most most young aspiring footballers never make never get anywhere near being professional but uh, but you can't you can't um, deter people from having that you know trying to fulfill their dreams you know yeah so, but coming you know kind of talking think about life which i you know been doing this show for a while and um i think about alan mcgee as you do sometimes and yourself <laughs> i suppose is that you know there's that malcolm gladwell you know the is it ten thousand hours you do ten thousand hours and if you're really lucky <laughs> you like the beatles you know they did all that stuff and then they did sergeant pepper and you know and he'd sort of found a few examples and probably cobbled together that sort of theory i mean did you do you sort of look at your own career and think oh yes i could have only done that if because of all the stuff that i did before and the same with alan in the sense of you know he did all those stuff you know like was it the living room the indie label in london then he did you know the the beginning of creation records with people like jasmine minx and people like momus who momus who no one really remembers no i know i i i wrote for sounds magazine as well right that was another part of the transition dave was working for sounds uh, on the uh, as the um as the uh, art director and i got a job saying well, i could review uh, music uh, and so he said well why don't you then so i went and reviewed a band and uh, got printed and so I, I i became a fairly established music journalist in my own right and, and which which again helps all of this background information yes and i was wondering if that is that you know all part of you know like realize and you had to sort of develop you know sort of it's a bit like kind of developing a character or not like a david bowie sort of character but you know it's all part of the the experience of kind of understanding more things meeting more people having success having slight failure having disappointment but then realize and you start to sort of things start to click if you're kind of lucky and and obviously you know things started to because a lot of those indie bands from the seven uh, the 80s obviously the smiths were you know quite major but most were quite tired by 87 88 and they just thought i'll throw in the tar you know towel a lot of the people who went to see those bands then went and formed bands you know in the sort of early 90s and went wow we've kind of cleared up a bit because you know suddenly we're on top of the pops we're no longer sort of on the 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 sort of the murky world that is john peel getting the session and playing the norwich arts center and thinking we've made it or the princess charlotte and and all the the harlow square so in a way you know it, it kind of helps develop those scenes doesn't it it's, it, what i didn't realize i have been doing this show now for a while is that that sense of like well the whole scene is is you know developed over that period of time you know you had the gatekeepers you had like the music papers which were weekly and american musicians go my god you had weekly music papers we just had to wait once a month for this the rolling stone or one of the other ones which were like they weren't going to sort of be reviewing Bogshed and Stump particularly, were they? Whereas in the NME you, or Sounds Melody Maker, you probably would. And then you had that free seven-inch single, which was again important. And then you had all these clubs being run by enthusiasts who would say, phone up and say, do you want to play 
on a Wednesday night at Norwich, you know, the Wild Club, you know, and it, it kind of helped formulate it. But obviously the 80s was kind of the birth and then the 90s was where things seemed to kind of like happen. And I, you know, I just wondered if you sort of looking back realised that all that work that you did in the 70s and then that period helped formulate what happens next. Well, it, 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 it gives you the personal experience, so it helps you to be able to relate to uh, musicians when they're coming through and and also having experiencing the knockbacks as well as the small successes that you have along the way is very, very helpful because um, not every band has their setbacks, every single band, you know, including the most successful bands, have setbacks at some point, and, and it just uh, makes you stronger, I think. But... Uh, so, so I know Alan McGee very well, by the way, and um, he's, a, he's a sort of friend of mine. <laughs> uh, although, you know, we were kind of fierce rivals for a little while, but, uh, and I'm also very friendly with Saul Galpin, who, who started Nude Records and put out um, Suede. Yes. So we all know each other now, and uh, because all of us were, um, all of that generation eventually did um, collaborative deals with majors because we needed the money, which wasn't the case for the likes of Mute or um, Beggar's Banquet, who, who'd made a, a load of money from uh, Gary Newman or Depeche, Depeche Mode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so the 80s were a very peculiar time. But, um, uh, so we, we um, food, food records, Dave Bowles, who was in the Teardrop Explosive, he started the label I joined at a later date and then eventually took it over. But um, we we were we had to get funding from somewhere because we we couldn't compete otherwise. So we we did a deal with EMI, which is all moving a long way away from the disco zombies. <laughs> but it's all part of the narrative, though, isn't it? I mean, you wouldn't be able to do that if you probably hadn't done the disco zombies. No, no, uh, oh, absolutely not. Uh, but, but, but when I say moving on quite a long time, I think by the time we we. Food started up as labelled about 1985, 86, and so that's only four or five years after after we split up our band. So um, it's not that that great a time, particularly. So so to a certain extent, there was a there was a kind of um it wasn't quite seamless by any means, but uh, there was a natural progression from doing putting out your own records and being in the band to putting out other people's records and, and overseeing their fortunes and, and 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 so so we sort of managed groups initially as well so being in the, the disco zombies and we dave and i formed another band afterwards called club tango if you will um and that was a bit more new romantic thing so um we it, does got into bit, that. it does sound like a wham b-side doesn't it it does and um so did our music really but uh, <laughs> mind you Grand B-side would have made you a lot of money, so... Yeah, absolutely. If only Andrew had originally did the vocals, it would have been a classic, Andrew. Anyway, yeah, so you were definitely... I mean, are you amazed that that with that that group, that you only pulled out a few singles and then 40 years later has this compilation? But then looking at who was in the band, like Dave Henderson, yourself, you know, that's one hell of a kind of Hollywood-esque story, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, we, there were definitely uh, characters in the band, but, you know, when we first met up, we know that we'd go on to do what we were going to go on to do later, obviously. But uh, uh, the bass player, Dodd, he, he stumbled into becoming a trader in uh, 
bullion or something and he made a fortune and he only did that by accident so so i don't think i don't think there any anyone had a particular particularly strong career path lined up at the time so we you know we, you know, we were just a bunch of students you know in 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 um in a in a large provincial town really or city i should say yeah uh, and, and um but we made some good tunes and uh, and and obviously some other people thought so too subsequently because otherwise they wouldn't be daft enough to invest money in, in putting a compilation record together because uh, somebody did that we this first happened to us about um, 2011 i think uh, there's this label in in california called acute came up with this idea of doing a compilation album for us which which we did and we did a thousand records with them and i thought we're nuts and he said we want to do a thousand vinyl vinyls and um i thought well if anyone's that mad that really wants you know, squander that money on on a punt on some obscure English band that no one's ever heard of in California. And so I thought, well, let, good luck to them. And that sold out quite quickly. And um, they go for about 50 quid a, a pop now, our second hand. But um, I think the copyright elapsed on that front. And Dave Henderson's been in charge of overseeing that kind of thing because Dave has a relationship with Cherry Red. Right, of uh, course, yes. Doing some stuff work with them and um and then, then all of a sudden he says oh there's there's this um label in preston, preston. called um uh, called uh, action record shop and that's the um what's the name optic nerve optic nerve records and they've been you know they have brought out some amazing compilations and collections and uh, and been burrowing because that's the thing with the 80s and this is what i didn't know when i was doing the show was that there are literally hundreds of bands. I mean, and there's little subsections or, or you know, you were sort of talking about genres. You know, you get the the punk, the well, post-punk, and then you get the psychobilly, then you get this goth, then you get the indie, then, you know, kind of on and on. And you just think, wow, actually, that every one seems to have got this phenomenal amount of music. And there was, again, you know, I suppose going back to, the, you know, there was the venues, there was the fans, there was kind of places that would get played or heard so that, it wasn't just like putting something out and no one being able to either see them or hear them. It, it, it was kind of, there was a lot of kind of gatekeepers around. Well, not a lot, there was only a few, but actually they were quite influential, you know, almost no, like... They, they were, the, the music papers were extremely handy tools for record labels as well, because, um, because you, as you rightly say, there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, bands, artists, what have you, out there and well, the good thing about the music papers is that because of the number of writers that they had they they would effectively filter through all of these bands and and uh, there, there would generally turn out to be some kind of consensus amongst them there were four music weeklies at the time in, in the early 80s include record mirror record mirror Sam, yes with maker enemy and um and so we were all extremely competitive. And so all of those music writers were effectively mini A&R men in their own right, or women, because they were filtering through the editorial system of the papers, which were which, which the bands to write about. And, and so, so that was a, a very handy, convenient guide for the music industry to see what was, what was current and what was going to become popular. Because once you were in the pages of the music papers, you would, you would get guaranteeing yourself extra profile, which would then filter through back onto radio and TV. So it was a very good instrumental process of uh, 
of sorting the wheat from the chaff is being done at that grassroots music paper level. Yes, I know. It's amazing. And dear old John Peel and those incredible sessions. When do you, you know, in the 90s, what was your, what was kind of the, the kind of the, not the beginning, but the kind of, because it was the late 80s, you, you became part of Food Records. When did it, when did you finish with Food Records? Well, eventually it sort of, um, well, when, when the, t- the start of the new millennium thing was roughly about 2000, 2001 is when uh, the demise of, of decent music uh, in recent years, I think, was it was the it's the internet to blame, really, I think, because uh, when, once uh, the American kids worked out that you could download your favourite band's music for free, uh, that was the beginning of the end for the, uh, the live guitar bands, as, as we know, because um, the, the bands wouldn't make any revenue from selling records anymore. Uh, and um, so eventually bands couldn't afford to um, tour. Uh, people then started to expect to go and see live gigs for free. And, uh, and, and, and the music papers all went out of business around, well, filters gradually went out of business. In, uh, around that that period too, um, I think sounds finished in 1991, yeah. and uh, I so I, I actually did the cover the cover story for the last issue, which was the the wonder stuff, uh, and um, then a shoegazing came around. And I came up with that term, and <laughs> and um, so the, 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 but gradually gradually the. Um, that the entire indie music scene sort of ran out of um, avenues. Really, it, it, everything turned into a sort of a dead end after after the after the uh, emergence of the internet. I really think that that's um, just kind of contributed to ruining music. And we, on the one hand, it's making it much more accessible. I mean, I, I subscribe to Spotify Premium, you know, so. Uh, uh, you, you, music is everywhere, but uh, who's going to pay for it in the first place? That's the problem. Yes, uh, this is true. And did you? I mean, did you see the documentary or film with Jimmy Iovine, where you know everything's yes. going terribly well, and then suddenly the internet hits, and it's almost like the panic phone call going, "I think it's all over." And it's like, "What are you talking about, Jimmy? We're doing so well. Don't worry." It's like, no, it's it's. I've just seen something, and it's a disaster. Yeah. That, that's true. People did. It was a bit like the Titanic, not noticing the iceberg in front of it. But, uh, uh, so yeah, that that, that so for my, my my stint with food sort of came to a natural end, really, because um, uh, we'd we'd done pretty well out of it, and and, and I think our, our, t- our time was up at that particular point, and uh, I was just I was just fortunate to be in uh, in a position to be putting out records at a time where people, you could actually make money out of it, so yes. uh, that was okay. Yeah. And, um, but it all comes. It all comes around, and uh, so we've got an album coming out in January, and I think it's most uh, ludicrous, really. Um, but uh, you know, it's quite quite interesting, and and hopefully uh, people might actually like 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 the music, which is um, something that I keep forgetting about. That, 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 that some people must like it, otherwise they wouldn't be investing in uh, wanting to put the record out. Yes. So, because because with Alan, he's still got his a record label, and he's still plugging away, and he's putting together a festival next summer. Um, so, what's because I am not on the clock. What what's your record label that you've got? I haven't got one uh, at, the, at the at the moment. I don't envisage that I'm likely to have one. I'm sort of 
managing a couple of acts and uh, not particularly looking to do too much because it's um it's it's generally it's a thankless task really uh, it, it, trying to get something away in the, in the music business because from experience you know that chances are no matter how good the act is the, the chances are stacked against you really so um I'm, if something came along at any time i'd give it consideration but um, i'm not driving myself mad waiting for something and did you and did it feel like you know suddenly you had that made those amazing decades and then 2000 2000 come along it must on one level be nice to think oh i can have a break but then do you sort of kind of feel like god you could do with the sort of excitement of all that kind of you know music entertainment the the kind of the roller coaster world that is rock and roll I think that I, I'm a bit more optimistic about music uh, currently because it seems to be a new crop of um, acts that are coming along that are actually quite good. And um, uh, there's a band called um, uh, the the Riddles, which is a terrible name, uh, for example, who I like a lot. And um, uh, I, I actually do a, a, a program, not at the moment, on Boogaloo Radio, which is uh, based in, in a pub in Highgate which is quite good so and McGee's got a show on that Bernard Butler's got a show on that yeah uh, several David um, Morrison I think David sold as well hasn't he he has had one I don't think he has it anymore but uh, also um John Leckie the producer my god what a CV so uh, but uh, I haven't been doing that because this lockdown thing I, 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 I don't know the personal I don't have the personal knowledge of technology to be able to work out how to do it from home. So I, I, I might do that. I'll let you know if I get back. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, when you, um, I mean, just, I mean, with the, you know, because it's been such a very career, I mean, was there a kind of a particular moment, you know, especially in the sort of the, the height of, I suppose, you know, that dreadful term, Britpop, that, you know, you're proudest of, you know, a, a single or an album that you think, yeah, God, that was just everything the stars had lined up. That was just stunning. Well, the, yeah, a few moments. I, I think that the, the, the one time that I had the, the biggest, like, um, revelation, was was with a group that eventually ended up being called Jesus Jones, and Jesus Jones, um, we had a, a number one album with them quite early on in 1990, I think, and that was a quite an achievement in those days because no little bands didn't have big hit records. But I remember at the day that, that, that they'd been bugging me for about three years in various configurations of the band, and the, the drummer Jen, his name is Jen. Is a bloke, um, and he'd come round. Uh, we're in a group called Camouflage. Here's our cassette. And listen to it. Nothing, not very no, okay. Come, he comes round a year later. Hi, Jen. I'm in the. My band's called the Big Color now, and um, here's a cassette. I listen to that. Oh, well, that's better. He's a nice chap. So, and a year comes by, and he comes. It's, hello, hello, Jen. What, what, what are you called this year? She says we're called Jesus Jones. And here's our cassette. And I thought, all right, and I'll see you. And then I just just put the cassette in um, in Brewer Street in our office, in the small office, I should say. And it's this song called Info Freako. And I thought, I've never heard anything like this ever before in my life. And and uh, it's worth having a listen yourself if you don't if you're not familiar with the song, because uh, no one had ever used all this kind of sampling and. Um, 
across across I don't know sort of dance music in in an indie band and and uh, I just thought this is an astonishing record and so you get those occasional moments I remember the, the blur moment was when they when they were called Seymour the manager who was a Dutch lady who ran the recording studio she brought in a, a cassette and um, I heard that and uh, two songs were rubbish and two songs were good one song was exceptional and that was called She's So High and that became later became the first single by Blur and so that was another important moment but they do they come along rarely but but um but equally the the, the thing is that if you're in that position where, where these events come along you have to spot them you have to identify them because you could miss them otherwise if you weren't paying attention. So, yes. Anyway, I was just going to say, just I mean, if you could have said something to an eighteen-year-old self starting out in the world that is kind of rock and roll, I just wondered what you would have kind of liked to have given them some advice about, or just a, a top tip. Oh God, um, I, I haven't got a clue. I'd say get 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 a decent job in the record shop. And see. <laughs> You never know what will happen next. Oh no, no, no! So you know, so you surround yourself with music and music, yeah. And you put yourself. If you're running a, a, a cool, the cool record shop in your, your neighbourhood, then everything tends to gravitate or, or um, revolve around that particular hub. So you put yourself at an epicentre of something, and, and things happen. So yeah, I, I don't really. I don't, um, I don't regret that at all. But, uh, but, but it's, it's a good job to have if you like music. You just go and go and work in a running record shop. Absolutely. Did you did you feel you know just that that thing the the kind of I know the media made it a big thing, but I just remember in the seventies we used to have those kind of that footballing tournament with the four countries and you'd have the big rivalry between Scotland and England. Did did it feel like that a little bit in the nineties with the sort of the record label? You know, the kind of the food against creation records did that have that feeling of like come on guys we've got to score this one you know we've got to oh god yeah i mean it was it was quite uh i hated them i hated i but i I realized now that i didn't actually hate them but if you didn't (laughs) if you didn't get yourself into that state of mind i've got a phone that was ringing there new phone don't sorry about that um um no, I think it was fear. We were fiercely competitive, but then after all, um, it, it's over and done with. You know, in the this, this, after twenty years or so, you realise that actually you thought you're all fierce rivals, but really you were all on the same team. Yes, uh, we were all. Yeah, no, we were. We were. We, we, we were. We were different versions of the same ethos, anyway. You know, so. Uh, I, I really like all those people now. Uh, now, that I, now that we've put away all the tomahawk, <laughs> there is the hat. You know. And can you remember the first time you had a chat with Alan and, and it didn't feel quite so... Well, I suppose the first time might have been very tense, but, you know, did you, do you remember? Well, I meet him very well because he had this club called The Living Room in above the... the um, what's the pub? In, in Camden. The was it? Was it wasn't the, the George Roby, was it? No, God no, no. I know the George Roby. He he had this. He he his venue moved around a bit. What was it? The Elephant's Head in um 
in Camden. He had the venue in the in the room upstairs, which is a little theatre now. I met him there, and I reviewed his um, one of his sh uh, shows for Sounds, and I said it was like a, a tip or something. And he didn't. We, uh, so I got off on the wrong foot with him entirely. So um, we didn't we didn't see eye to eye from the very outset. We we didn't particularly care for each other, but then. We both got. He started his record label, and I had started mine. And um, so we, we we were never big mates at the time. I must must admit that because uh, because he'd be fraternising with the enemy, you know. Yes. But uh, after a while, you think you know we're we're both trying to do the same thing, really. So we might as well get along. So. And we get we get on fine now. So. So, yeah, well, it's hard not to when you get to a certain age because you know it completely. It seems irrelevant now, but you know at the time it seems phenomenal rivalry. You know, it's a bit like the oh, Marathon Rockers, wasn't it? But that benefited both. Everyone benefited from that competitiveness, you know. And and when when the Blur and Oasis thing came to that head when we had the records out the same week, which is, uh, I'm not going to go into that story. But um, but when when that came out, it it benefited not just the an oasis it benefited elastica and supergrass and every other indie band because of the exposure that it gave to the whole music scene at the time so it was a beneficial thing for everybody i think and and the record companies liked it because they made tons of money out of it yes you know? Yeah. Do you? Do you yeah. I just wonder. I was just wondering. You know, when you look back, you think, "Oh my God, I wish we just had enjoyed it a bit more." Because a lot of band, a lot of musicians, well, we definitely enjoyed it. We had a, had a high old time. So. <laughs> yes, and you and most. Well, not everyone, but most are still alive. You know, apart from what band are mostly not not with us anymore. Primal. Primal Scream. Did they lose most members? No, no, I don't think so. Um, mm. are you thinking of the, sh the shaman, right? Because there's, there's some bands that you think, Oh, actually, there are quite a few missing now, aren't there? But, um, no, I can't remember. Yeah, the Ramones have all gone, haven't they? And and then, and all the New York punk scene mainly because that was so full of her heroin at the time, so that's not a good one either. Well, Richard Hill's still around, yeah, and so is Richard Lloyd, actually. So, there you go, but so many aren't, so they're sad. Yeah. Okay, that is the end of the interview, apart from the last few moments where we said goodbye, which was emotional. But anyway, um, I know, sorry to end on a bit of a downer, trying to work out who's still around. Anyway, a big thank you to Andy Ross for giving me the time for that interview. As I said at the beginning, and hopefully you're still paying attention or made notes, um, yes, the Disco Zombies, they have got this compilation that's going to be coming out on Optic Nerve Records. Um, early next year, 2021, so do check it out. This has been David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86Show. And also, all these interviews have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.